a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. And once again, we welcome fellow wrong thinker Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to connect up with you once again. How's life treating you today? Oh, pretty good. I, I have one regret, though, and it is that I have not obtained for myself a sheep to uh, to walk by my side as my service animal when I go out to the store. <laughs> you know, I was telling you before we went on the air, I, I just traveled up to Idaho this week, and my family and I are in the process of relocating there, and... I can't tell you what a what a great decision this feels like, uh, except just to relate. Um, I saw one mask that I could that I could notice. One person was wearing a mask. Um, didn't make a big deal out of it, but there were. I mean, life seems so normal there. Mm-hmm. It, it was just shocking to realize how far it slipped in in some of the more populous and, and urban areas. Sure. You know, a band gets used to practically anything, and if you're used to being in prison for a number of years, that becomes your new normal, to borrow a phrase. But when the gate finally swings open and you're out in the free world again, you realize just how awful it was to be in prison. And that's essentially the experience that you're having. And I had that experience myself some 17 years ago when I moved, luckily preemptively, away from northern Virginia and moved to southwest Virginia. And the feeling of being free, of being able to go out in my backyard, and I felt, if I felt like putting up a beer can, for example, and plinking at it with my twenty two, I knew I could do that without having to worry about a SWAT team coming, right. uh, which is what would have happened in northern Virginia. So I absolutely get it, and I think that that's part of what's driving, we talked a little bit off the air, the, the real estate market and the way people are getting out of these, uh, these metatastic, diseased areas of the country and moving to areas such as the one that you're moving to and the area that I currently live in. Yeah, it's and and I watched a clip yesterday of uh, Dr. Fauci. I'm sorry, Pope Fauci. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, talking about well, maybe by next Mother's Day we'll be close to reopening yeah. societies, but there's going to be conditions. And and I thought, you know, Dr. Fauci, you should you should take a little trip through Idaho, and you're going to find that there's a lot of people there who aren't waiting for you to tell them when it's okay to become normal again. They just went ahead and made that decision for themselves, as it should be. Yeah, well. That's, and that's got to happen because there is no end to this. If anybody believes that there is an end to this, uh, they're, they're whistling past the graveyard. It's wishful thinking. You notice that the goalposts constantly shift. Uh, it's, it's, it went from being uh, flat in the curve to a couple of weeks of lockdowns to now, what is it? It's fall of 2022, maybe, before things uh, return to, to normal. It's, it's absurd. And, and not only is it absurd, it's reaching new heights of absurdity. I read this morning that the FDA has been given authorization uh, to administer, uh, the, to, Pfizer has been given authorization to administer the jab to 12-year-old kids. Now, to put that into context about absurdity and evil, kids that age have a 99.998 chance of not dying from the Rona. Wow. And yet they're going to they're shoot these kids up with this vaccine that has... Uh, that has some very, very terrifying side effects, something that most people are not aware of because the media is not reporting it, uh, is that as of today, since December, some 4,000 people have died coincident to receiving the holy needling. Now, 
Uh, to put that into some context, in the year prior to corona, the number of people who died coincident to receiving a flu shot was about 80. Wow. So, so we have a massive increase in lethal side effects from this quack scene. And the fact that kids and young people are being pressured, if not forced, to receive this holy jab is absolutely outrageous. It's, it's of, of Dr. Mengele-ish proportions. Well, it was very clear from what Dr. Fauci was saying about, well, we'll get close by next Mother's Day. But he yep. said that's, that's depending on certain conditions. And one of those conditions yep. was everybody has to take the jab. That's right. Exactly. And it's not just this jab. It's jabs ongoing. Uh, if you follow the news, you've probably seen uh, that they're already floating the, uh, the seasonal jab. So it's not just this one time. It's not just the second time. It's every time, ongoing, indefinitely, they want people to subject themselves to this needling. So I think we're transitioning now from diapering to needling. In fact, uh, I, I titled my latest diaper report precisely that, because, uh, you know, they've succeeded in using the diaper to, uh, to get people to the point where they're willing to accept the jab as the price of not having to wear the diaper. Wow. Well, it's it, what this is doing, though, is it's moving people who are serious about their freedom to a, to a decision-making point. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I want to strengthen people who are trying to make the decision, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide what's best for me and not be pressured, but it's hard. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of leverage being applied from, from a lot of different angles. Yeah, it's an exodus, um, and it's a costly exodus. You know, people are fleeing places like New York, Northern Virginia, uh, in your case, the urban areas of, uh, you know, of the state, to, to get out. Now, that's the, the downside to that, of course, is that it has driven real estate prices through the roof. In my area, and it's probably similar in your area, and I'm sure you'll tell me, a place that two years ago would have sold for, say, $150,000 is now selling, the day it's put on the market, for $300,000. Yeah, easily. And, and people are waiting with cash in hand, and look, we'll pay an extra 50000 on top of your asking price Exactly. if you'll just give us the first shot at it. And that's, you know, that gives you, it's a barometer, it's a, it gives you a sense of the desperation that people are feeling, you know, the realization that, that they can never again expect to lead a normal life in a place like New York City, for example, where now you have to have, per Gesundheitsführer Cuomo, the Excelsior Pass in oh order to participate in normal life. If not, uh, there's kind of a health apartheid regime that's being established where, you know, the, the, the diseased-carrying unvaccinated are to be segregated, to be denied entry, um, to be treated essentially as blacks were treated in Africa under apartheid. Well, and it is, this is happening in other places around the world, too. Um, I just saw the news footage. Maybe you saw this, too. The Canadian pastor who banished the cops from his church yes. was arrested over the weekend. He wasn't just arrested. He was treated as if he were a dangerous armed felon. It was cringing to watch this man be uh, forced to the ground. Of course, they always do this now because they have to establish their little ape-like dominance rituals. His hands jerked behind his back by goons in body armor with guns. It's despicable. I have no words for it uh, that that can properly express my contempt for this thing. Uh, All that man did was attempt to hold a voluntary gathering. Nobody was forced to go there. And uh, as is the case in all of these cases, no one's gotten sick. They simply assert, oh, somebody might get sick. And that's sufficient to treat somebody uh, literally as if they were some kind of dangerous armed felon. And I wonder at what point people are going to say, enough of this and step in and do something about it. 
Yeah, it's it's very disturbing. I don't know if you've seen the video out of Germany of a guy standing in the town square reading from the German Constitution. And I mean, yep, pe- people are just, and, and the yep. police swoop in and arrest him as soon as he's done reading it. And one person, one person stepped forward and immediately the cops moved to contain them. But of course, if everybody had stepped forward, I don't know. You know, I'm not saying that violence was the only solution, but if enough people stepped forward and said, this isn't going to happen, there's strength in numbers. It wouldn't happen. Yeah. There is a famous video that uh, has been on the Internet for some time, and it's, I think, at a, a sports event where uh, a guy who runs across the field, you know, pulls some kind of a stunt like that, is mobbed by four or five cops who start to pummel him and beat him up. And uh, bystanders act, start to rush out from the stands, and, and it catches on. And before you know it, the stand's empty, and all of a sudden those cops aren't so brave anymore. No. And no. They, they take off and run. And I hate that we're at this point in the country, but frankly, we are at this point, and this is what has to be done to stop this. Uh, this is no longer about protecting the public. It's exactly about that. It's about protecting the public from tyranny and madness and evil. Yep. But people have got to know what they stand for. You know, I mean, that's the problem. There are a lot of people in this state of indecision and, well, do, do I have the right to do this? And, and they don't realize no person in authority, especially an authoritarian, is going to give you permission to defy what they're telling you to do. Absolutely. And more broadly, if you accept what they tell you to do when it's, when it's something that is unacceptable and that you should not be required to accept, they're going to make more demands. The Fauci thing uh, is a perfect illustration of the point. Yeah, you give them a little, they're going to take more because ultimately it's not that they want some control, it's that they want total, absolute control. There was also a great story reported by French television last week um, about how in Germany, uh, the people who are protesting these COVID lockdowns are invoking uh, Sophie Scholl, one of the members of yes. the White Rose Society. And it's angering the authorities and it's angering some people on the on the left. Hey, that's not fair. You, you, mm-hmm. She was an anti-Nazi crusader. And it's like, you don't see the totalitarian yeah. you know, direction you're leaning right now? Oh, absolutely. And to fast forward a little bit, the, the, the current... Um, uh, Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, is a former East German Stasi uh, official. She was involved in the Stasi back when uh, East Germany still existed. So she's a horrible person. And the people who are behind this are horrible people. And it's time to call them out for that. This is no longer a question of, oh, well, we have a different opinion. You've got yours. I've got mine. This is about evil and good. And it's time that good took a stand for itself. Amen, bro. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Um, we are reveling in wrong think at this moment. Thank you for joining us. Eric, I, I had a chance, I was telling you off air, to ride in a Tesla for the very first time um, last week. And I got to say, that was it, it's a pretty impressive car. It, it's, it's not my cup of tea, but mm-hmm. that was uh, you know quick. Holy cow. I mean, I, I couldn't get the smile off my face every time we pulled away mm-hmm. from a stoplight. But mm-hmm. uh, you have a great article out uh, recently. In fact, I think it just published this morning about uh, Tesla and GM finally admit it. And, and mm-hmm. there's, there's a hard truth 
Go ahead and speak that hard truth to us. Well, let's begin by saying that a Porsche is also a very impressive car. Um, but the difference between a Porsche and a Tesla is that the owner of the Porsche doesn't force you to help him pay for it. Oof. And <laughs> that's what the problem with these Teslas is, and with electric cars generally. They can't stand on their merits. And the article talks about the push, the public push, not just by Tesla, but also by General Motors, to reinstate the federal $7,500 per car tax bribe that uh, formerly was given to people who bought a, an electric car and which subsidizes these electric cars at the expense of people who don't own electric cars. And it says something um, about the intrinsic viability of the electric car. If you had any other vehicle that was discounted that massively, and that's really what we're talking about here, it's just a discount financed by the government through the tax code. If you had a vehicle that they couldn't sell unless they took $7,500 off the sticker price, that would tell you that that car's a lemon, that there's something wrong with it. People don't like it, it's too pricey, whatever it is and they would give them away as quickly as they could, and they would stop building them. But somehow that same simple logic does not apply to these electric cars, which they're continuing to try to just cram onto the market, irrespective of the fact that it's obvious there is no real market for these things. Well, th look, they're impressive cars, but I agree with what you're saying. If, if it were something that, that people really wanted, um, you would think the market would reflect that. But how, how does, what's in it for government? Why does government get involved and subsidize, you know, the production of these vehicles? Well, because electric cars are a vehicle for more government control. The non-electric car is truly autonomous. You talk about the auto driving capability. Uh, you control it. Once you've fueled it up, you can go where you want to go on your own schedule. You're not tied to some centralized grid in the way that an electric car is. With electric cars, you're tethered, literally, uh, to your power cord. Your range is limited. You're compelled to wait longer. And, of course, electricity is a centrally controlled, government-controlled commodity. Most public utilities are, you know, essentially government entities. And they will be able to determine whether you will be able to get electricity in the future via these smart meters, for example. Or you're using too much electricity. Got to, you know, got to curtail that usage. Um, and in addition to that, electric cars are uniquely um, amenable to being controlled remotely over the wire by their updates. I don't know whether your friend showed you that about the Tesla, but the Tesla is connected to the Tesla hive mind and is constantly, just like your cell phone, receiving updates over the air. And they can manipulate the range of the vehicle that way. You know, they did that. A good example of that was during uh, the hurricane that happened before all this corona stuff uh, a couple of years ago. And Tesla sent out an over-the-air update to allow their electric cars to be driven farther so as to let people be able to get out of the danger area. Do you remember that one? Oh, I, no, I wasn't aware of that, but that is yeah, that is kind of chilling. So, it's like the Borg has a, has a say in, in your uh, conveyance. Yeah, well, so, I mean, that was taken as, hey, great, thank you, Tesla, but you know, it implies, doesn't it, if they can increase the range, they can also decrease it, can't they? Yeah. And if we, if we get to the point of having this, this China-emulating social credit system where everything that you do results in either a positive or a negative chit against your social credit, um, and then they can use your status to determine what you're allowed to do, what you're allowed to get, where you're allowed to go. That's what they're doing in China. You know, if you have a negative social score, for example, uh, they deny you access to public transport. Um, and the same mechanisms can be used in this world of connected everything to limit whether you can use your electric car, how far you can go, 
And even if they don't do that, they'll know where you're going at, at all times. And I find this to be just an incredibly creepy thing. And even creepier is that the general press is not explaining this to people. So is it safe to say the days of the internal combustion engine are, are numbered? Well, that's, that's the plan. Uh, you know, they're really hard selling these electric cars. And the corollary, corollary to that is that they're using the mandates and regulations to make it increasingly difficult and probably ultimately impossible uh, to build a legal non-electric car. Um, you know, the, the emissions mandates now are at the point of almost being impossible to comply with. And I think at some point they're going to start really getting heavy on the carbon dioxide emissions thing. And, of course, the only way to, uh, to get rid of those is to get rid of the gas engine entirely. And I think that's the way that this will be done, ultimately. It's interesting that you talk about how, you know, the, the electric cars, particularly the Tesla, can monitor, you know, how much you're using it. Um, I never mm-hmm. really thought about this, but with the smart metering yep. and so forth, yeah, you know, your carbon footprint is now being monitored in real time by, sure. by those who are concerned with such things. Sure. And, you know, in a number of localities, I think they do this in New York, uh, you know, during peak usage season, uh, they will dial back the amount of electricity that you can get. And uh, it purely is a practical matter, leaving a lot aside any sinister political machinations. Right now, as, of, as things stand, the grid is at or near capacity in most parts of the country, and it simply cannot support the additional load of millions of electric cars plugging in to receive their charge. And that is going to result in one of two things. It's either going to be brownouts or it's going to be energy rationing. There's no other way to get around that thing. Okay, let's talk solutions here. You're a resourceful guy. I think I'm a fairly mm-hmm. resourceful guy. Um, how can we maintain our independence or at least keep ourselves out of that web of control that's being spun around us? Well, I think we can start by doing what we, we began this conversation with, by trying to get as far away from the blast radius as possible, yeah. uh, to get away from the diseased parts of the country and to be in healthier parts of the country, uh, parts of the country where local and state law, for example, will not punish people for not having an electric car, where you'll be able to continue to drive uh, your, your other-than-electric car. That's one way to do it. Um, and just to express, uh, express your, your, your politics and your philosophy via your actions. Don't just stand there and take it. Do something about it. You know, from, from the small scale of not wearing the face diaper uh, and refusing the holy needle to, to, to not, not buckling under and living under this kind of tyranny. If necessary, pick up sticks and move to someplace less tyrannical. Yeah, and, and look, for a lot of people, the, the, the thing that's going to hold them back is, whoa, but there's, there's a certain lifestyle that I'm accustomed to, and I don't want to shed any of these comforts. Sure. And, and there's a trade-off here, though. I would gladly shed a few physical comforts in return for the comfort of knowing that I'm a free man, and I can move and act and, and engage in commerce as I please, as opposed to being well, a coddled slave. Amen. And also, I think to a great extent, it is a false choice. It's the same false choice that a lot of businesses have unfortunately made when they made the choice to accept being locked down, to accept operating at half capacity, and to enforcement of these face diapering regimes, because ultimately it's not enough. They're never going to let them return to normal. So this idea of dangling the carrot in front of people and and saying, oh, it'll be okay, just do this, just do that, no, they're they're not going to let up. It's not only going to stay the same, it's going to get worse. Uh, the only way to, to make it better is to stop tolerating it and do whatever you have to do to not tolerate it anymore. Hear, hear. 
Eric, we're, we're fast uh, coming up against the clock here. Let's talk mm-hmm. for a moment about your website, epautos.com. Um, yep. People need to go there. What are they going to find when they get there? Well, they're going to find uh, things such as we're talking about right now that have to do with current events and philosophical topics, but they'll also find things about cars and motorcycles, both new and old, uh, and mundane stuff, too, about, uh, well, I've got a problem with my car. It's not running correctly. Uh, Have you got any suggestions about what I might do to fix it? Uh, Can you help me with some advice about what kind of a car uh, I should be looking at to buy? That kind of a thing. So there's there's almost anything that you can imagine um, over at the site, including... Uh, a, a really, really vigorous and healthy comment section yes. where uh, a lot of really bright uh, and interesting people are posting. And I agree. Read the comments. You'll, you'll get an education from them alone. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest again. Always. We'll look forward to next week. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I'm not saying you have to listen to every word that comes out of my mouth, but it would be really nice if you would hit the subscribe button. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. While you're there, you'll notice a little uh, tab that uh, says, hey, you want to become a sponsor of the show or at least a donor, a patron? And consider that. If, if you find that there's useful content coming your way via this little program, uh, consider maybe donating a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month to, uh, to keep me focused on what I'm doing. I so appreciate the people who have stepped up and done this and continue to do it. And I'm inviting you to consider it again, presuming that it's providing value. If it's not, well, then no big deal. I wouldn't ask you for your money. So let me ask you a question, and this is kind of a pointed thing and maybe even a little bit painful to consider, but if your country was in decline, how would you know? And by the way, that's a question that goes a lot further than just, well, you know, are you asking what our political health is or is there something more to it? I know the the news media and the, the news cycle tends to place everything political right at the forefront which could lead people to mistakenly believe, well, obviously then this means that, uh, you know, this really is what matters most. I saw this article today on intellectualtakeout.org from Donald Livingston. It's actually the review of a book, The Decline of Nations, Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World. It's by Joseph F. Johnston, Jr. And this seems like a pretty decent book. I'm, I'm actually considering getting my hands on a copy of this because I I don't know how I would answer. If somebody said, Brian, how would you describe, if, you, if your country was in mortal decline, how would you know? And I can think of a few symptoms, but they're not all limited to just, you know, what's our political health? You know, do we have, do we have the right person in charge? And, you know, Joseph Johnston, the article explains, in this book he describes how the Roman Republic and the British Empire both rose to greatness and then declined. And in light of these two models, he turns to examine America's own areas of serious decline. And his goal is to explain how these pathologies came to be and even to suggest remedies. Now look, there are a lot of people who've written about America's decline, but what makes this study special is its comprehensive and integrative character. 
It's a magisterial analysis of the moral, religious, philosophical, educational, political, legal, cultural, and foreign policy elements needed for the success or decline of a nation. Disorder in one element can lead to decline in others. So in short, this book, The Decline of Nations, is a CAT scan from head to toe of the American body politic, revealing areas where fatal strokes or heart attacks or malignant malignant cancers are likely to occur if proper steps are not taken. Now, Johnston doesn't believe that America is entering a period of irreversible decline. In fact, he points out that commercially, technologically, and militarily, the U.S. is still at the top, but... He thinks the individual and civic virtues needed to sustain the country are in serious decline. Isn't that interesting? We don't hear a lot of talk about that. It kind of goes back to, you know, when politicians are running for office, you know, they want to point to their success. Well, look at all the jobs I created. Look at the money I brought home. Economically, here's how we're doing. And that seems to be the sole way that they like to define how we're doing. Are we helping people economically? But when you start thinking about things like uh, moral and civic virtues, ooh, that's, that's when you need to, to really pay attention because that's the foundation. I mean, you can be doing very well economically, but if morally or spiritually or civically you have no virtue, it's not going to last. Back to the article. Moral and civic virtues spring from confidence in a religious vision of reality, which entails a common understanding of the human good. Now, this religious disposition has been subverted by philosophical theories that privilege a tradition-free vision of radical individual autonomy. And once this thought takes hold, the very idea of virtue drops out in favor of state-enforced individual rights. So, as the article explains here, without a tradition of virtue, individual rights become the playthings of power. And this is just one example. Uh, The ancient institution of marriage was ruled by the Supreme Court a few years ago in Obergefell versus Hodges to be oppressive because it excluded same-sex couples. No matter that marriage united man and woman around the natural act of giving birth to children and raising them in a family to be virtuous members of society. The court redefined marriage as nothing more than sex play among friends. What's interesting is you look back at the history of, like, for instance, the Greeks and Romans, who had no problem whatsoever, you know, with with homosexuality or same-sex sex, but they never deigned to call it marriage. I mean, obviously they got something out of it because it was part of their society, but they never called it marriage. Isn't that curious? Now, as Donald Livingston says, this is just one of many pathologies explored in this aristocratic study, which serves as a wake-up call that the axe is already hitting the roots. He says, I wish, however, that Johnston had asked himself whether the nation he seeks to strengthen still exists. What if we were becoming two or more would-be nations? Though not intended to do so, this study might suggest, that, to, to some at least, that such is indeed the case. I wish I could take a a more optimistic view and say that, well, the decline that we're seeing right now, you know, it's reversible. We could turn this thing around. I'm not so sure. I mean, I want to be an optimist. But I'm not so sure that it's a a reversible trend. I think back to one of my favorite TV shows. It's old now. It's almost 20 years old. um, Firefly. Some of you will resonate with this. It was a Joss Whedon show, uh, a crew of... uh, you know, spacecraft 
folks who are always just a step ahead of the law and trying to eke out a living, smuggling and doing other things, you know, odd jobs, but they're trying to stay ahead of an oppressive government that wants to control everybody. And one of the, the central tenets of that story is, you know, they, they had moved out, humanity had, had moved into colonizing and terraforming other planets. It could take decades to do so, but they would find a moon that was habitable or, or suitable for life and then terraform it and create, you know, climate and, you know, make it sustainable. And the gist of the story was, uh, you know, that uh, Earth became so used up and so overpopulated and so polluted, they referred to it as Earth that was. And I don't know, maybe there's, you know, an environmental message in there. Um, I, I really loved the message of freedom and personal autonomy that seemed to, to flow through the, the series Firefly. But that, that phrase, Earth that was, has always kind of stuck in my mind, especially as I consider our, our current situation. And I don't think it's being disrespectful and I don't think it's being pessimistic necessarily to look at what we have today and realize that we are living in America that was, or we we reverence the America that was, is what I mean to say. Now, again, I, I don't know if it's if it's reversible. My my hunch is that things are, are so corrupted, at least within uh, much of many of the, the ruling structures of our society. I don't think you can fix rot. I think that eventually that rot spreads to the point that it uh, it destroys, you know, the, the foundation that we're built on. And if I can just be blunt, I think that there's probably going to come a point where it's going to fall apart like a house that has water rot or something like that, termite damage, it's not going to last forever. And as tragic as that may seem, it also provides a way for renewal. And see, this is where I'm optimistic, because I believe the ideals of America that was are still very valid. I think they still work. I think the principles and practices of liberty, of private property, of freedom of conscience, of limited government, I believe they absolutely work when they are applied. So when people talk about, well, we got to get more involved, we got to just get, you know, in, you know, deeper into politics and more smart about how we vote and we've got to, you know, just try harder and vote smarter and I think no, what we need to be focusing on and this is just my opinion, maybe we should be focusing on building what comes next. And and I don't say that from the 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 viewpoint that, you know, everything is lost. But from the standpoint that, hey, other nations before us, you know, as great, at least in their time, in terms of economic, political, military clout, have likewise collapsed and find themselves, you know, in the dustbin of history. We've made many of the same mistakes, and I think it's delusional to pretend like, but it will never happen to us because, you know, we're the exception. No, I think it can happen and probably is happening right now within our culture. But the question is, what comes next? I think there's a passage of Scripture in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. This is where Wall Builders gets their name. Once the, uh, once the, the city has been destroyed, who will rebuild? Who will build the walls? I think we're, we're supposed to be those wall builders. And yeah, we're very much a minority. But again, with correct principles, with moral truth on your side, with God's help, 
I think anything is possible. The question is, are we going to be able to ride out the decline? And that I, I don't know. I hope this so. Is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout out to our sponsors, MonticelloCollege.org, Pure-Light.com, and HSLAmmo.com. There are links to each of these fine sponsors in the show notes, which you'll find at the BrianHydeShow.com. So something I've noticed, maybe you've picked up on this too, have you noticed how people in touch with reality seem to have options that those who've come untethered from reality do not? I was thinking about that as I read an essay today from the Z-Man. This was uh, published on LewRockwell.com. It's an essay about what happens when fools rule. And one of the things that I know comes to my mind is, okay, it's, it's pretty easy for people to agree, yes, yes, we have a lot of foolish people trying to rule us right now. You ever wonder how it is that their worldview is so incomplete or so out of touch? Let me give you some thoughts here from the Z-Man. He says, it's axiomatic that uninformed people are the easiest to deceive. Now, a corollary to this rule is that the people most certain about the things, the people are most certain, rather, about things they understand the least. Scientists are well aware of the gaps in their knowledge, but the evangelist is absolutely certain about the truth of whatever he's peddling. Taken together, intelligence and experience lead to prudence, while stupidity and ignorance lead to foolhardiness. Now, the Z-Man says, working backward from this understanding, we can begin to understand why the American ruling class is going insane. The defining feature of this age is that the people in charge are certain about things that are imaginary. For example, the government denied Christians a permit to assemble for the National Day of Prayer because they fear invisible white supremacists or white nationalists will launch a revolution. I wish I was kidding. Z-Man says they think this because they're sure the January protest at the Capitol was part of a plot to overthrow the government. The nation mostly saw flag-waving boomers taking selfies and laughing with the cops. The political class is told that was cover for an invisible army of white supremacists. And these white supremacists are lurking out there on the other side of the razor wire waiting for the chance to pounce. Now there's no question that the country's at odds with itself and its ruling class over a long list of issues. The race issue remains as troublesome as it was when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Our politics are a disaster of fraud and corruption. These are true things. But the ruling class talks about them from a position of ignorance. They sound so weird because they have no idea what life is like for the rest of us. This starts with Joe Biden, a man who spent his adult life in government. His private sector experience was at a political law firm for a year, 50 years ago. Now, of course, his brain is scrambled eggs. Even if he were still in control of his faculties, he would have no reason to question the claims about invisible Nazis hiding around the Capitol. Why would he? Everything he knows comes from the government. His second in command and future leader of the free world, stop laughing, is Kamala Harris, who has never sullied herself in the dreaded private sector. She spent the first four years of her work life making sure Speaker of the California Assembly, Willie Brown, was feeling groovy. Then she ran for office, and it's been 20 years of uninterrupted life in one elected office after another. 
Arguably, the third most powerful person in America is Nancy Pelosi. Under the section titled Private Sector on her Wikipedia page is nothing but a string of emoticons to indicate hilarious laughter. Pelosi has never had a real job. In fact, she comes from a family of tax eaters. Her father was a lifelong politician. Her brother was a lifelong tax eater, largely credited with ruining Baltimore while mayor. The second banana in the house is octogenarian Steny Hoyer, who, like his boss, has avoided the private sector his entire life. According to his bio, he was a mediocre student, so he naturally chose politics. He was a Senate staffer while attending law school and then ran for an open seat upon graduation. He has spent 55 years without ever having worked a real job. And it's not just Democrats who are allergic to honest labor. The top Republican in the House is Kevin McCarthy. His first job out of college was as a staffer for Congressman Bill Thomas of California. Then he was a chairman for the Young Republican National Federation, He was elected to the California State Assembly in 2002 and then won a House seat in 2006, and he's been in Congress ever since. The GOP's second-in-command in the House is Steve Scalise, a man who appears to have started out life in the hope of making himself a productive citizen. He majored in computer science at LSU. He must have fallen in with a bad crowd along the way as he never made it to the dreaded private sector. Instead, it was time in the Louisiana state legislature and then off to his current spot in Washington. The number three Republican is the most amusing. Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, is the Republican conference chair. Unlike her bosses, she technically had a job in the dreaded private sector. She worked at a law firm that is called White and Case LLP. Now, granted, it's just a cat's paw for the American empire, but technically it counts as the private sector. After that short run, she was on the dole in one government job after another before landing in Congress. Now, of course, these people are surrounded by an army of staffers and consultants who also have avoided real work. And the people who occupy the staff spots for elected officials in the congressional committees are just as committed to avoiding honest labor as their bosses. They start as interns, get a staff job out of college, maybe a trip to law school, and then it's back on the government payroll. And the Z-Man says, this is why these people sound so weird. How could Liz Cheney know anything about the concerns of the people she's supposed to represent? Wyoming is just a place she read about and visited on vacation. The people of that state would be better off hiring a Frenchman who once went on holiday to Jackson Hole. That Frenchman would know he knows nothing about Wyoming and maybe would hire some locals to help him out. Liz Cheney's staff is all pod people from Washington Hackerama. So this uh, phenomenon is not exclusive to politics. Z-Man says the media is stocked with carnies who maybe waited tables once but otherwise have no contact with present reality. Their life is on stage playing the role written for them by equally obtuse and ignorant people. The mass media is a circus, but the audience is out of sight from the performers. The media carnies cannot hear the laughter and jeering. It's nothing but piped-in applause, which they assume is the real thing. This brings us back to those axioms of life. The people in charge are running around spouting crackpot conspiracy theories because they know little about the people they govern. They're easily fooled because they are so ignorant. Why would they question the Russian conspiracy? Everyone they know thinks it's true. Those ants they see through the telescope, the people the rest of us call neighbors, sure seem to be doing what the Russian experts have claimed. This is why they're so certain of these crackpot theories. They've barricaded themselves behind razor wire and armed men because they are absolutely sure the crackpot theories are true. 
Again, people are most certain of the things they least understand. In this case, the cloud people know so little of the dirt people, they'll believe anything about them, because they have no way to know otherwise. It's why we find ourselves ruled increasingly by foreign fanatics spouting bizarre conspiracy theories. Now, the Z-Man concludes by saying that history says when the gap between the reality of the ruling class and actual reality gets too wide, there is a break. The French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution are two examples. The ruling class became detached from the people they ruled, so they could not see what was coming. Similarly, the credentialed naifs of the managerial class are blind to present reality. They do not know what they do not know, but they're absolutely certain of it, and it will not end well. I don't think that's too abstract. I think that's actually right on the money. So here's the question I have for you. What are you and I to do about it? Because I'm certainly not encouraging you, hey, maybe you should run for public office and get in there with them and straighten these people out. Not at all. In fact, if, if I can just be blunt, I think this is as good a time as any to, as, as much as possible, turn your back on politics. Or at least relegate it to a very small subsection of your life which, uh, you know, has its season. Oh, it's election season. I better be registered and informed and go vote. Maybe you attend your city council meetings. Maybe you, uh, you focus more on the local level. But my advice to you is, if you really want to find some happiness, if you want to find some contentment in your life, try focusing on all the things in your world that aren't politics. Long-time listeners to this show know that uh, I'm a big believer in at least seven different institutions in society, only one of which is the state, which would include, you know, the political aspect. You have family, you have community, you have church, you have academia, you have the business community, you have media. Although I have to say media is, <laughs> lately it's, it's been, uh, you know, almost indistinguishable. It's, it's, it's been uh, absorbed by the Borg that is the state. But think of all those different aspects, all those different facets of your life where your attention can make a noticeable difference. Yeah, you can make a difference in politics. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that uh, there's, there's not a, the ability to exert influence there. Just don't ignore the other ones. Not only will you find things a whole lot happier and a whole lot less conflicted, but you may be surprised at how far a little bit of your influence goes in those other realms. Just something to think about. This is The Brian Hyde Show.